0: This episode is brought to you by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI enables rapid access to secure, traceable, hallucination-free insights from enterprise systems, all while using any LLM, helping enterprises turn the invisible into the obvious. Learn more at C3.ai. We are approaching the 11th straight weekend of protests in Hong
1: Kong. Millions there have taken to the streets, shouting demands for more democratic freedoms. Some have vandalized government buildings and clashed violently with police. At
0: the heart of the summer of chaos, concerns about China and its looming authoritarian grip.
1: Today on the show, what is fueling these protests? And what does it mean for the future of Hong Kong?
0: Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power.
1: I'm Kate Leinbach. And I'm Ryan Knudsen. It's Friday, August 15th.
0: Hong Kong has seen its biggest political crisis in decades, in the last 10 weeks. Natasha Khan is a Hong Kong correspondent for The Wall Street Journal.
2: I've been covering the pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong since 2014. And I've been covering the current round of protests
0: this year since it started. There's an unlikely trigger for these protests — a murder in Taiwan.
2: There was a couple that was from Hong Kong that were traveling to Taiwan for a trip. And the boyfriend in that couple had murdered his girlfriend, allegedly. He fled back to Hong Kong, and Taiwanese authorities asked for him to be taken back. Because Hong Kong didn't have an extradition agreement with Taiwan, authorities began to really try to push through this proposed law, which would allow for Hong Kong uh, people and other suspects to be extradited to China and other countries for trial. This proposed law was really contentious because China has a more opaque judicial system, and there were concerns about human rights abuses
0: for people who were tried in that system. People in Hong Kong were unhappy with this law for one particular reason. It could let China reach into Hong Kong, a semi-autonomous region, and apply Chinese law there.
2: As more and more people in Hong Kong society started asking for this bill to be either delayed or withdrawn and there wasn't a response from the government, momentum began to build for a giant protest essentially on June 9th, which ended up drawing an estimated 1 million people on the streets. It was a hot day, it was humid, and people were waiting, I mean, seriously, seven hours to just walk down the streets and to make the statement that they cared, that maybe the government should rethink this bill. There were people in wheelchairs, there were grandmothers, there were people with their families, you know, there was just a, a, you know, really a broad cross-section of Hong Kong there. And what happened was that, I think about an hour after the march was officially declared done, the government didn't come out and address these one million people, which represents like a seventh of this
0: population, but they issued a press release. This press release acknowledged the protesters' concerns, but said in essence that the protesters simply misunderstood the bill. It also said the extradition bill would continue to move through Hong Kong's Legislative Council on June 12. And so, once again, people in Hong Kong took to the streets.
2: On June 12th, it was a very tense mood, and in the mid to late afternoon, police started clearing the protesters with quite a lot of force. You know, they used a lot of tear gas, rubber bullets, which really caused a huge reaction in society here. That, in turn, led an estimated 2 million people to come out the next weekend.
0: The weekend after that, and the weekend after that, protesters kept coming out. They have shown up in malls, in hospitals, and this week, they shut down the airport. You
2: know, the scenes were were one of solidarity. Many people took the day off from work to go and support. And you had people just chanting throughout the whole day, just chanting, sitting on the airport arrival hall, chanting for the government to listen to them. You know, there's a term in, in Cantonese, which is the language uh, we speak in Hong Kong, and it's called and it means add oil. And it's really kind of like a, a word of encouragement to say, hey, like, I got your back, you know, you can do it. And, and one of the biggest chants that you always see now, like every few days when there's a protest,
0: is people saying, Hong Kongers, add oil. You know, Hong Kongen,加油. There are a lot of things adding oil to these protests. The way the protesters are organizing online, the way police are responding. But the driving force underneath it all has to do with this extradition bill. Not the bill itself, but what it could mean for Hong Kong. Hong Kong's leader Carrie Lam said she would suspend the bill after those early protests. But she hasn't withdrawn it entirely. It may seem like a pretty nuanced difference, but protesters are worried that Lam may be serving China's interests, not Hong Kong's.
2: From the protesters' point of view, if you could do this one thing and you're
0: still not doing it, is it because China has said they're not going to withdraw the bill? It feels like there's this tension between the Hong Kong government and China. Like you have said distrust, right, of the Hong Kong government, that they aren't just puppets of Beijing.
2: Yes, and I, and I think that that's something that didn't happen overnight. One of the things that people talk about a lot here is that th- this summer of dissent really is a result of years of resentment.
0: That resentment has been building for more than two decades, thanks to a promise made to Hong Kong when it became part of China. That promise and the lasting conflict it set up That's after the break. Welcome back. Britain controlled Hong Kong for more than a century. But in 1997, after years of negotiations, they gave it to China in something called the handover. When the handover happened, Britain and China agreed to certain terms, ones that have been at the heart of every protest in Hong Kong since.
2: Hong Kong didn't become just another Chinese city when it was handed back over in 1997. They came up with this new concept called One Country, Two Systems, where Hong Kong is a part of China. That's not disputable. But at the same time, Hong Kong would be allowed more autonomy under this agreement. So the rule of law would be retained and, and completely untouched. And the way of life here would also be the same that it was before the Hanover. So- it is still the only place under China's control that follows a Western-style system. So it has freedom of speech, rule of law, and that's what makes Hong Kong such an attractive base for all these international companies. That's why it's the gateway to China. That's why many contracts to China are are drafted here, for example. So those are the benefits, right, of having these two systems. And
0: immediately following that, what was the political mood in Hong Kong?
2: Immediately after the handover. Because this One Country, Two Systems was in place,
0: life seemed like
2: status quo for a while.
0: Were you there? Do you remember? I was,
2: but I was quite young at that time. Um, So I've I've lived here uh, since I was born in
0: 1985, (laughs) but all I remember from it was really fireworks. At the handover, China and Britain held a big celebration. Prince Charles gave a speech. The eyes of the world are on Hong Kong today. I wish you all a successful transition, and a prosperous and peaceful future. At midnight, the British flag came down, and the Chinese flag went up. And the next morning, as part of that change of power, the Chinese army entered the city. During these early years, people in Hong Kong maintained their autonomy, One signal of it was that every year, in honor of the victims who'd been killed by the Chinese government in Tiananmen Square, they held a candlelight vigil. Things continued this way for some time. But in 2003, the first threat to this autonomy emerged, in the form of a proposed law that went by the name Article 23. Article 23 is basically a national security
2: law that would make any act of treason or subversion to the state illegal, Article 23 really scared people here. I mean, half a million people took to the streets in a, in a giant march and ended up, because of that march, forcing the government to eventually withdraw the bill. So that's hailed as a time of great political and, and, and civil awakening here because it really showed to the people at that time that their voices mattered, and that was always cited by activists after that as as a victory for the, the power of the people then.
0: In 2014, more than a decade later, the people of Hong Kong tried to use that power again. This time, not in response to a bill they didn't like, but because they wanted something more. The real overarching demand they had then was for a concept
2: called universal suffrage, where people would be allowed to choose their own leader. And at the moment, the candidate for the chief executive are chosen by a committee. Who determines who's on this committee? The authorities here and in China do. Are any of them elected? No, not directly. And so that's that's really how the system works. And so... In 2014, they wanted true democracy. They wanted to be able to choose their own candidates and then eventually for every person in society to vote for this leader.
0: Then, like now, people took to the streets in a protest called the Umbrella Movement. In September of 2014, there were a
2: number of angry protesters that had surrounded the government headquarters. And police fired a number of rounds of tear gas onto the protesters. And at that time, that was a shocking scene for Hong Kong. I mean, tear gas was uh, never been really used and caused many more enraged people to come out on the streets, which allowed them to fully occupy a number of roads that were right in the center of Hong Kong. And that actually continued for 79 days. There were eight lanes of traffic, that were covered in tents, covered in protest art. People would fold origami. There was a student study center. It was very overwhelmingly peaceful. How was that resolved? That ultimately ended in failure in terms of their actual demands because they did not get universal suffrage. There were also some satellite protest sites across the city, and and one by one, they were cleared. I hear again and again and again, In 2014, we sat there for 79 days. We sat there for 79 days. We are like, asking, crying for you to pay attention to us. And you didn't, you know, I mean, you being the government.
0: You taught me that peaceful protest doesn't work. One person who was paying close attention to the protests in 2014 was China's new leader, Xi Jinping. And since that time, Xi's government has clamped down on some of Hong Kong's civil liberties. There was the case of the booksellers, who sold books critical of the Chinese government. Two of them were kidnapped from Hong Kong and brought to mainland China. Then there was the incident of a billionaire in Hong Kong who was taken to the mainland by Chinese state security officers. And in 2017, President Xi said that for him, there were boundaries to one country, two systems. He said any challenges to China's sovereignty over Hong Kong would be crossing a, quote, red line. The way that protesters are now spreading their message could be flirting with that line. Some of the protesters have, uh, in I think week four or five, started
2: targeting a very popular mainland Chinese tourist spots in Hong Kong. And, you know, we're giving out flyers to Chinese tourists and sort of saying, hey, this is the cause that we're fighting for. So that contagion effect, you would have to imagine, is scary for a government, as in China, that has always rooted all its goals onto, you know, stability and, and on its grip on power.
0: So that's a really interesting strategy. These Hong Kong protesters are passing out flyers about democracy to tourists from the mainland. What is China saying about these protests? In the first few weeks,
2: they were really quite measured and and just said, you know, we trust the Hong Kong government to be dealing with this on their own. In the last few weeks, as the protests have have shifted a bit, becoming increasingly violent and becoming increasingly uh, unpredictable— They have been much more involved and much more vocal about how the authorities here need to restore law and order here. They have singled out some of the more radical protesters that have emerged in this movement and and said it's absolutely unacceptable behavior. We've also seen that news on this protest no longer is censored in China. And in fact, there has been quite a lot of videos maybe pinpointing on more of the violent aspects of this protest
0: and sort of circulating that in social media in China. Why would China circulating these violent videos, why would they do that? People
2: we've been speaking to have said that this provides a bit of cushioning and justification among the mainland population if a more violent or a more harsh crackdown will occur.
0: Yeah, I mean, the biggest fear, right, it has to be that China moves in the PLA, its army, and shuts it all down.
2: I think that's one key fear. I think that's that's a key fear that people talk about a lot, but I think that even if the PLA doesn't move in and if the police start using guns here, you know, I think that that imagery and that sort of parallel to Tiananmen it will still be detrimental definitely to Hong Kong and and how people see it and and for the people who live here. It is a very remote possibility that they are going to be sending in the PLA, but you've got to think that it is sort of the
0: ultimate tool in their tool shed. Bringing in the PLA isn't just the most extreme step. It's exactly the kind of thing that protesters are speaking out about. China's ability to impose its will on Hong Kong. This moment is a test of the promise to let Hong Kong have its own system.
2: One of the most stark differences, obviously, from Hong Kong and and, and the mainland is, I mean, we're seeing it in front of our eyes, right? People still are allowed to express their opinions. um, And usually, China has responded to dissent in China with censorship, with uh, locking people up. And this time, it's hard to see, with the two different systems, how they will apply their playbook on, on dissent
0: and successfully still retain a prosperous Hong Kong. The handover in 1997 was just the start of the merger of China and Hong Kong. The deal also came with a deadline. In 2047 the two-systems framework would expire. No guarantee of two systems, but one country. The agreement had been that China would let Hong Kong retain its
2: freedoms and way of life till 2047. At at that time, it it was believed that if Hong Kong could maintain its current political system by 2047, that potentially China would have become more democratic, and so the integration then would be much easier.
0: Now, we're nearly halfway to that deadline. And not only have the two systems not come closer together, the passage of time has brought new challenges. You know, just looking at the math of the years since the handover, it's a a generation. So if you were born after Hong Kong was handed over to China, you're 22 now. And you're looking at the future, and 2047 is your lifetime.
2: It's interesting that you mentioned that, you know, the 22 years, because I mean, actually an overwhelming majority of these more radical frontline protesters are in that age group. I mean, we've seen people as young as 14 on the streets, you know, so it's a very young group of people. I mean, when they talk about this, they talk very much about fighting for, for their future.
0: Following the violent clashes at the airport this week, China moved thousands of paramilitary police to the border with Hong Kong. And on Friday, the richest man in Hong Kong took out a pair of full-paged ads in many of the city's local papers. One is directed at protesters. It asks them to end the violence and cautions that the best intentions can have the worst outcomes. The other is aimed at China, It references a Tang Dynasty poem, a poem that calls on an empress not to kill her own children. More protests are expected this weekend. That's all for today, Friday, August 16th.
1: The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. Your hosts are myself, Ryan Knutson,
0: And me, Kate Leinbaugh. We're produced by Ricky Nowetsky, Sarah Platt, and Willa Rubin. Our senior producer is Pia Gudkari.
1: Annie Rose Strasser is our supervising producer. Griffin Tanner is our engineer. Our executive producer is Gerard Cole.
0: Our music this week comes from Haley Shaw and Bobby Lord from Gimlet. Additional music from Dear Nora and Blue Dot Sessions.
1: With editing help from Beth Blackshire, Christine Glancy, and Alex Bloomberg.
0: Thanks for listening. See you on Monday.